Thank you for listening to The Leader. Please do subscribe, rate, comment and like wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We've got some really good guests coming up in the days ahead. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. Heathrow Airport screening some passengers as doctors try to halt a deadly mutating virus from China. But is it already here? There's been a lot of work done since SARS that shows that, in general, you know, formal airport screening of, of, of everyone's temperature has low efficiency. Actually, more cases will get through than you pick up. Disease expert Professor Peter Horby spoke into the Evening Standard's health editor, Ross Lydell. Also, she's just secured her place on the ballot paper. She's just won the endorsement of two unions and one affiliate group. Could Lisa Nandy upset the odds and become Labour leader after Jess Phillips pulled out of the race? We ask our political correspondent Sophia Slay and. He was a, 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 an extraordinarily sort of rounded and interesting individual and also, I have to say, a very nice man. Critic Nick Curtis on Terry Jones, the Monty Python star who's died aged 77. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, airports are now the front line in the defence against Wuhan virus. Why an expert doesn't think it'll work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. It is absolutely critical that public health authorities recognise a super spreading event in the very earliest stages, before it goes absolutely explosive. It's often called the world's largest human migration. Each year, hundreds of millions of travelers across China board buses, trains, and airplanes to return home for the Lunar New Year. We had a Washington state resident, a man in his 30s, who was in Wuhan, China. Samples were confirmed by the CDC that, in fact, he carried the novel coronavirus. Passengers, ashtrays, and other 
The coronavirus outbreak started in a food market in China's Wuhan region. There are now more than 440 cases recorded in locations around the world. Nine people have died. Now some British experts are warning it could have the same mortality rate as the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, which killed at least 20 million people. Heathrow Airport started screening some passengers coming from China. Our editorial column says it can be stopped if international leaders work together. In 2003, a viral respiratory disease threatened to spread from China. After almost 10,000 cases and 774 deaths, it was brought under control. SARS, as it was called, was beaten through good medical advice and coordinated worldwide action. The lessons show that a worrying new kind of coronavirus, which has also emerged in China, can be controlled too. It will take honesty about the situation, a calm, informed response, international cooperation through the World Health Organization, and screening to catch travellers who may have been affected. Unfortunately, calm, honest international cooperation is just the sort of thing that has become harder to arrange in an age of social media scares and populist leaders. Action, not panic, is needed. Our health editor, Ross Lydell, is just back from a briefing on this. And Ross, there's been comparisons to the potential deadliness of the Spanish flu virus. Yes, very alarming. Uh, There was a briefing at the Science Media Centre this morning when essentially some of the top infection control experts in the country uh, were available to all sorts of health and science journalists to ask questions about it, essentially put this in context for us so we could understand better. And Professor Neil Ferguson, who is from Imperial College London, said it's possible the mortality rate could be as high as 2%. That is comparable to the Spanish flu in 1918. Now, If we go back and check the history books, the Spanish flu seems to have killed between 20 and 50 million people. And the comparison he was trying to make was with um, a a major influenza outbreak and the fact that many people may contract flu, but not many will die. What's unknown with the coronavirus outbreak here is quite how infectious and deadly it is. But that was at the higher end of his estimates. But yeah almighty uh, headline, really very alarming. So it's no surprise then that the UK is putting in measures to try and prevent this thing from coming into the country, including screening some passengers at Heathrow. But you spoke to an expert, Professor Peter Horby from Oxford University. He seemed a bit sceptical that might work. Yes. um, Essentially, the problem is the incubation period between somebody contracting the virus and it showing symptoms. I think airport checks covers a you know a multitude of possible um, activities including you know uh, giving information to people, putting up posters, having healthcare workers available to talk to. All of those you know measures have a degree of effectiveness, but what you have to remember is that you know if they're screening people on exit and they're not uh, don't have a fever, what's the chances of them arriving with a fever and being picked up rather than developing a fever after they've gone through the scanner. And so they do, there's been a lot of work done since SARS that shows that, in general, you know, formal airport screening of, of, of everyone's temperature has low efficiency. Well, actually, more cases will get through than you'll pick up. So the problem is that it's quite feasible that nobody will be detected coming off the plane at Heathrow unless they have sort of fever symptoms. Otherwise, nobody will know. If the, if the temperature isn't high or normal, 
they may well have the have the virus within their their body, but nobody can tell. And and really, it's down to that bit of luck, as as it was said today by these experts, that the timing works. Otherwise, everybody else will sail through, and it could be several days or longer before they actually start to display the symptoms that show they have contracted it too. Did you feel from that briefing that there is a a sense of urgency about this? Because as I understand it, Wuhan, where this virus originated, it's not a major, the UK is not a major destination for people coming from there, is it? As far as we know, we think there are three flights a week direct from Wuhan to London. So it's not a, a major destination. And obviously today the Department of Health and Public Health England has announced that it will be now monitoring these flights that that these planes will be landing at Terminal 4 in a different area to other passengers and all passengers will be given advice as to sort of step forward if they have been feeling unwell and told what to look out for in the coming days. The sense today was very much one of common sense. It's wise to to take this very seriously. Currently the situation is moving very fast and we're seeing a, a rapid increase in the number of reported cases and we're seeing a rapid increase in the number of cases being seen in other countries. It's too early to say if this is going to really take off, but we should be prepared for that. The government probably wants to be seen to be doing something uh, to because the, the idea of not doing anything is probably worse. Uh, but the reality or the effectiveness of screening at airports is that it's not the most effective way to, to catch things. And uh, it may catch one or two, but not many. You know, we think back a few years ago to Ebola and it didn't really catch many there at all, including actually one of the the nurses who contracted it. She managed to get through the checks at the airport. There have been no confirmed cases in the UK, but there are some in other parts of the world, including the United States. So the World Health Organization, we're expecting them to classify this as as a, a public health emergency, aren't we? That's right. And that would then put it on a par with things like Zika and Ebola. But crucially, what it would do would essentially mobilise more of a global response. It would allow guidelines to be sort of sent across the world so that each sort of public health organisation within each country would know what to do and what's expected of it. But probably the main thing would be a better sharing of information so that countries such as the UK, which are world leaders in infectious diseases, would be able to assist countries like China should they wish and the big concern really is as well whether the Chinese people go to Africa because obviously if it gets to Africa and starts to spread and the the signs are that it would spread very easily not so much through the air so not so much you would catch it from sneezing but more coughing perhaps um, you know fluids from your mouth being touched by somebody else and it would spread in that way but if it gets to Africa where there are far less sanitary conditions where the the, the, the sort of health control or the ability to control diseases in Africa is much poorer than in the developed world. That would cause great concern to the WHO. Next. I still think it's all to play for. I don't think it's a done deal. There is there is growing momentum behind Lisa Nandy. Political correspondent Sophia Slay on the latest in the Labour leadership campaign. The race to be the leader of Labour's holding up as one of the big candidates stands aside. Jess Phillips has quit and now she's backing Lisa Nandy. Our political correspondent Sophia Slays in Westminster. Sophia, Lisa Nandy was an outsider at the start of this, but she's having a good week. Yeah, I'm sure her team are 
feeling very buoyed today. It's been a really exciting 24 hours in the Labour leadership race, particularly for Lisa Nandy. Um, everybody's talking about Lisa Nandy. She's in memes online. She's all, all in good, you know, good humour. But she's um, she's she's running through. And um, actually, we've just learned in the last half an hour that she's just secured her place on the ballot paper. She's just won the endorsement of two unions and one affiliate group, um, which means she gets onto the ballot with Sir Keir Starmer, who's already on the ballot. So she's she's number two. Um, Rebecca Long Bailey who's seen as a sort of uh, Corbyn continuity candidate, is also expected to follow suit. Um, she's tipped for an endorsement from Unite, the union, on Friday. Um, but, but back to Lisa, she's, um, she won the backing of GMB union last night, which was a great coup for her. Um, that sort of left her, you know, in, in sort of touching distance of making the ballot, and we were all sort of expecting, expecting her to, to get on it. And then um, we've just heard sort of in the last few minutes that, that Chinese, for Labour have backed her, which is an affiliate group, and that's helped her get over the line as such. And of course, um, Jess Phillips, who pulled out last night, she's also endorsing Lisa, isn't she? She is, yeah, that's another really interesting development. Um, Jess Phillips is, is an outspoken backbencher and, and Corbyn critic. Um, she dramatically quit the race yesterday um, and dropped out. Her campaign seemed to be faltering somewhat. Um, and this morning she, she she announced she would be backing Lisa Nandy as leader as her first choice. And then she said Sakir will be her second preference on that list. Is all of this enough to beat Sakir Starmer, who is still the bookie's favourite to win? Well, that's a good question. Um, I still think it's all to play for. I don't think it's a done deal. Um, there is there is growing momentum behind Lisa Nandy, and I, you know there are rumours swirling. It's it's quite the rumour mill at the moment. Everyone's quite excited, but but you know rumours are circulating that that. Keir Starmer's team were sort of desperate for Lisa Nandy not to get on the ballot. You know, they did see her as a threat and a challenge, a challenger. And also, we, we shouldn't forget to mention that Shadow Foreign Secretary um, Emily Thornbury is still in the race. She's um, she's under a bit of pressure. She's got to secure the backing of at least 33 local parties. They're called CLPs um, because she's not she's not likely to get the backing of any of the, the big unions remaining. That story was covered in our morning news bulletins, which you can get through your smart speaker. Just ask for the news from the Evening Standard. Now, the actor and writer Terry Jones has died at the age of 77. He'd been battling dementia for several years. His Monty Python co-star Michael Palin says he was the Renaissance comedian and that he feels fortunate to have shared so much of his life with him. John Cleese says he had endless enthusiasm. Other tributes have come from Stephen Fry, who says he brought untrammeled joy and delight. Charlie Brooker called him an actual genius. The Evening Standard's Nick Curtis met him. Nick, Terry Jones was one of our greats. I think he was. I interviewed him when he um, wrote a short opera in uh, 2012 as part of the Olympics uh, cultural uh, pre-olympics cultural program uh, that was staged on a boat on the on the canal just a wonderful strange thing to do in keeping really with with python with his film work with his interest in medieval literature he was a, a, a an extraordinarily sort of rounded and interesting individual and also i have to say a very nice man on the brief evidence that i had of meeting him michael palin said something very similar called him a renaissance comedian because of all of the things that he was involved in it was quite quite an incredible career involving so many things 
It was. Um, and, and let us not forget, he directed what is arguably the funniest film um, in the English language ever, Life of Brian, uh, which I watched again quite recently and was amazed how, how well it stood up, how solid and, and sharp it is all the way through, uh, given how many years ago it was done. But, um, but yes, I mean, as I say, a very, um, very multifaceted um, career. And um, again, I was, I was looking into some of the Python heritage earlier this year for their 50th anniversary. And um, one of the in- interesting things that came out was that generally as a rule of thumb if a sketch was charming and surreal and just made you giggle it was by Michael Palin and Terry Jones if it was brutal and savage then it was by John Cleese and Graham Chapman um, Eric Idle and uh, Terry Gilliam were of course just off doing their own their own completely peculiar things but uh, but yes I think he and P and Palin were an extraordinary double act. He seemed like quite a, a fairly unassuming man you probably wouldn't have expected that he would be part of a comedy group that genuinely revolutionized comedy and that their influences still seen today. That's true and one of the uh, problems that I think has sort of tarred the Pythons um, in hindsight is that they are seen now as part of that um, Oxbridge Mafia of sort of posh people who go there and get into footlights and um, see it as, the, as, as a sort of direct ladder into um, light entertainment and BBC comedy but they were actually really quite groundbreaking. Um, they were not terribly, most of them were not um, terribly posh or well-connected or, or wealthy. Uh, most of them were sort of scholarship boys or grammar school boys who got into grammar schools on, on a scholarship um, were part of that great sort of post-war influx into, um, into grammar schools and into Oxbridge. And that's The Leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're back at 4pm tomorrow.